May 1st, 2015. To Tim. Subject, world's craziest idea. Let's go somewhere. Sell our house. Rent our house. Before our kids are in school. Can you take a year sabbatical? Let's get basic jobs. Let's buy a one-way ticket to somewhere warm and have an adventure. I'm serious. Maybe I'm just exhausted, but it would be amazing. I think we should find the cheapest Caribbean island we can move to and have an adventure. Maybe I'm just inspired by an article I read, but we only live once. I love you, Aaron. Welcome to An Architecture. This is Joe. I'm an engineer living in Adelaide, South Australia. My name is Tim, and I am no longer an architect living in Boston. My wife sent me the email and the introduction in May of last year. And by August, we had rented out our house. I had left my job, and we boarded a plane to fly to England to start our travels around the world. As we're about to discuss, Tim has been traveling over the last several months. And I have also done quite a bit of travel in my previous job when I was installing planetarium systems. So we thought that for this episode, it might be interesting to have a look at issues related to traveling, especially international travel, as well as issues related to moving to a different country, which is what I did back in 2008. Yeah, we want to explore this concept of freedom of movement, which is the ability to travel from one place to another and even settle down and live there, if that's what you choose to do. This sounds like a pretty basic human right, but really every country in the world has some pretty tight restrictions on who can and can't come in and what the requirements are for allowing people in. So we're going to reflect on some of our own experiences with traveling in and out of countries, and then dig a little deeper into what it means to be able to travel freely around the world. We've talked before about this concept of love it or leave it, But in today's world, if you don't love it, can you leave it? Where would you go? Is it possible to be a citizen of nowhere? What inspired you guys to take this trip in the first place and to make this big decision? Well, we've both always liked the idea of doing some longer-term travel. My wife actually grew up traveling with her family. Her parents are both teachers, and after doing a teacher exchange program in England... They eventually bought a house there. Since they're teachers, they had the summers off, and they would travel every summer back to England, and then from there do some more traveling with friends around Europe. So travel is something that's really been important to her life. We actually met each other while we were traveling in college on a study abroad program in Rome. So it's really a part of our own history as well. And we've done quite a traveling in the past, most of it before kids. (laughs) (laughs) And now that we have kids... We've been trying to think about a way to, to bring that back into our lives. And so why all of a sudden did you decide to do this? It seems like it was a bit of a rush from that first email until the time you guys actually got on the plane. Was there any particular life event happening or anything that inspired this? It wasn't so much a life event as it was just life. 
I guess there were a few events. One was that we had gotten record snowfall in Boston last spring, which we talked about in the solar scam episode. And so it was like we were just trapped in the city and trapped in our house. Uh, it was so hard to get out and move around and do anything that we were all going a little bit stir crazy. On top of that, we all got sick. One of the kids brought home a stomach flu from daycare and it just went through all of us and we were all home for like two weeks from work. <laughs> Just miserable on the couch. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never been sicker in my life than when the first year my kid went to childcare. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. It's just like a walking Petri dish. Yeah, yeah, it was rough. And so <laughs> after that, we, we all finally got over that. And then my wife picked up some other illness. <laughs> and so when she came down with this other sickness, that was the day that she sent me that email. <laughs> she was just so fed up with it and just looking for a way to get out. And she had read an article about somebody who had dropped their career to go and live on an island and serve ice cream to people or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And so she started thinking, well, why couldn't we do the same thing? There are lots of reasons why we couldn't do the same thing. But then we started thinking a little more about how we could. Beyond those initial triggers of the snow and the sickness, there were some deeper motivations just with what our life was like at that time that we wanted to try to stir the pot a bit. For one thing, we had some neighbors who had recently sold their apartment, and we started looking into the value of our house and started to think about where we wanted to end up next. Our son is going to be going into kindergarten, not this coming year, but the following year. And so we wanted to start thinking about, you know, of course, school districts and all this stuff. And Mm. like everybody else, it's a question of, you know, do we move out of the city to get into some good school district? Yeah. And then we started thinking, well, is that really what we want for our lives? And then we realized that we didn't really know what we wanted for our lives in terms of where we wanted to live, what kind of environment we wanted the kids to grow up in, and what that meant for both of our work situations, you know, how close we were to work and and all of that. So that just got us thinking more deeply about our life in general. The current state of our life was that we were both working. I was full-time, which meant about 40 to 50 hours a week. Uh, my wife was usually about 25 to 35 hours. She's self-employed as an independent contractor, working primarily with one other firm. She's a graphic designer, although she does take on her own clients as well. So did the fact that she was basically a freelancer give you guys a bit more flexibility with where you could live? Well, it, it did, um, not just where we could live, but also with our time. So when you have two kids and they're both in childcare, somebody needs to be going around and dropping them off and picking them up and then doing all the grocery shopping and all that other stuff. So the fact that she was not full-time, for the most part, allowed her to pick up the kids based on their childcare schedules. But the problem is what this meant was that she was spending basically about two hours in the morning driving around to drop off my son at his preschool, drop off my daughter at her preschool or at her daycare, and then driving herself to her office or taking public transportation to get in. And that two hours that it took her to do that was in a, within a radius of about three miles from our house. Yeah. So it was just, she just felt like she was literally driving herself crazy, driving around. <laughs> you know, and then that, that only got her about maybe six productive hours in the office. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's on a good day, but without distractions. Right. <laughs> right. And there were some days when I would drop one or both kids off, too. Yeah and then get myself into the office. And keep in mind, my wife and I both worked within less than two miles from our offices. So I could literally drive my car, take a bus, or ride my bike to my office within about 15 minutes. (laughs) And for her, it's maybe about 20 minutes or a half hour driving or taking the subway. 
So, you know, we didn't really have it that bad. Right. <laughs> but she still felt like she was just spending all her time driving back and forth, which she really was. Boston's not exactly an easy town to get around either. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, like I said, it's like two hours to drive around within a three-mile ra- three yeah. circle. Yeah, that's right. I still get lost every time I try to go to you guys' house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we just felt like we were spending all of this time running around. I felt like, even though I had a job that I liked as far as jobs go, that it was taking so much time away from my time with my kids and my family and things that I wanted to be doing for myself. Like the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you guys were both open to the idea of making some sort of significant change and shaking things up a bit. Yeah, I mean, we were both just feeling a little bit burned out with everything and feeling like between our careers and our family life and our personal lives, that we were just struggling with each of them and something just had to give. So how do you make that situation better by leaving everything behind and getting into a position where you don't really have as much of a guaranteed source of income? Well, so that was the first thing we tried to figure out. As I said, my wife had the original idea and sent me that email back in May. And I got home that night and started a spreadsheet <laughs> just looking at our, our own budget. We're pretty good at keeping up with our own personal budget. Uh, looking at those numbers and then setting up another set of numbers where we looked at this travel scenario. And there were a couple of things that made this actually start to make sense financially. For one thing, we thought we could rent our house out. And where we are, um, property values have been really going through the roof, which is why we had started to look at the value of our house in the first place. Yeah. But rents have been going up as well. And we've always thought about eventually turning this house into a rental property. Mm-hmm. So we thought that as long as we could get a tenant in there, that we could get a pretty good income stream coming in from the house that would more than cover the costs. So were you thinking that you'd be able to rent a place for less money than what you could receive in rent for your place? Yeah, exactly. So we started looking at places around the world with lower cost of living than in the United States. And that's if you go online and Google cost of living in certain countries, it's pretty easy to find these numbers. And specifically, we were looking at places with lower cost of, of housing. We did that a couple of ways. For one is we went on sites like Airbnb and Vacation Rental by Owner and HomeAway and started looking for apartments that were probably around the $1,000 range per month, mm-hmm. which we were able to find. For one thing, we're essentially downsizing from our current house. The four of us, my wife and I and our two young kids, could easily live in a one-bedroom apartment, although our preference was for two bedrooms so that <laughs> we got our own room separate yeah. from the kids. Yeah, I don't know if you'd be able to preserve the sanity with just a one bed. <laughs> well, we've, we've, we've done it in a few places now. Yeah. Beyond just finding cheap apartments, we looked into house-sitting, which there are a few websites out there. One that we've had the most success with is called trustedhousesitters.com, and there's another one called, I think, Mind My House. But my wife started my wife started applying for all of these house sitting gigs and what that means is that they're going on vacation for a couple of weeks and they have, you know, a dog or a cat or maybe two cats, three dogs, four horses, chickens and ducks that they want you to take care of. <laughs> and you apply to go and stay and watch their house and watch their pets while they're gone on vacation and they get a free pet sitter out of the deal and you get a free place to stay for a few weeks. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> Do you have to pay for that? No, no, that's the deal. It's free. That's right? all free. It's, a, it's just a, a fair trade, yeah. yeah. So we actually booked three of these house-sitting gigs all around Europe in the fall. And one of them was the house with the two cats, the three dogs, the four horses, chickens, and ducks. 
I thought that sounded a little bit specific when you said it before. <laughs> yeah. After she booked that one, my wife pulled up this other house that had some similar menagerie of animals. It was some farm somewhere, cats, dogs, horses, and donkeys. <laughs> and I said, and I told her, no, I am not doing donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> you got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> What's yeah. the problem with donkeys? Are they spite, kick? They're stubborn. Uh, yeah. Or are the horses that bad? I should say that the house with the horses, they did have somebody who knew something about horses. He was coming over in the afternoons to muck up the stables and get the horses back in their stalls and feed them. We did have to take the horses out in the morning and feed them a bit and fill up the water and do some of those staple chores. So you weren't the one shoveling the horse shit? No, we weren't, luckily. So between the house hits and just finding cheap places to stay, we were able to save quite a bit of money on our housing costs. The way I think it ended up working is that with the, with the income from a rental property, that covered both our housing costs back home as well as our housing costs while we're traveling. Right, okay, so that covers your housing expenses, I guess, but what about all your other costs? I mean, if you're traveling around, you're going to be buying flights, rental cars, meals, all that stuff. So how did you make that work? For one thing, our initial goal was for both of us to keep our jobs in some respect. So we both talked to our employers about the possibility of working remotely. My office has three locations now, so they're pretty well set up for people to work remotely. They actually have a benefit where for the first year when you have a new child, you can work from home one day a week to stay with your baby, which I had been doing for the previous year. So I had set this precedent of, of being able to work remotely in some capacity. And my wife, similarly, when we had our second child, did some remote work with her firm as well. So we both went and talked to our employers about what we wanted to do and why, and asked if they would consider allowing us to do remote work. And basically, my employer said no, and her employer said yes. And we figured out that as long as she was able to work 20 to 30 hours a week, that we thought that would be enough to at least break even with our current scenario. So at this point, you would be with only one income, where previously you had two, plus you had the rental from the house. Was there any other ways that you were able to cut costs in order to make this trip happen? That was actually another problem with our current life, the way that it was. With the costs that we were looking at over the next year for childcare, of course, our housing, we had two cars, you know, both cars, insurance and everything else, as well as some of our planned savings for the year. We were looking at ending the next year with 20000 less dollars in our pocket than how we had started the year, <laughs> which meant that we would have had to spend money out of savings, sell the car, do something drastic just to try to break even over the next year. And again, we, it's like we were just driving ourselves crazy to end up in a worse case mm. than we were in when we started the year. Right. And so by traveling, there were a few areas where we were able to make some significant cost savings. One of them was childcare. Childcare prices in Boston are really just are really unbelievable. We were looking at spending, I think, between twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars to have our two kids in childcare, and for one of them, that was just part time. Hmm. You know, three days a week yeah. <laughs> for the next year. And the childcares that we were going to, these weren't like the more expensive childcare centers in the area. These were my son's preschool was a nonprofit, not the lowest cost, but definitely a lower cost option in the area. And my daughter was just in a small family daycare in someone's house. But even at that, that was taking a huge chunk of change out of our pocket to the point that we felt like one of us was just working to pay other people to spend time with our kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
And actually, the fact that I was not able to work remotely kind of solved that problem for us. If my wife and I had both been working while we were traveling, it would have been a real challenge to find childcare options to make that work for us. So the fact that they said no kind of made it easier for me to just commit to being a, a full-time dad and for my wife to get the time that she needed to work remotely. Mm. And part of the, you know, another part of this is that it really kind of freed my wife up to possibly work more hours when she had the work to do for her firm. When she was bringing the kids back and forth to daycare, we figured out that the maximum hour she could have worked in any given week was about 21 hours. <laughs> and so by traveling and having me to watch the kids, she could flex that time as much as needed. So if they had a busy week at her office, she could work up to 40 hours or whatever she needed to do to help out with the work that came in. So in some ways, it actually created a better situation for her office. And I imagine graphic design is an industry where where the work might not always be steady, where you probably have some big projects that you have to get out at certain times, and then other times maybe it's a bit quieter. Yeah, that's true. Her projects tend to have a pretty quick turnaround. And the firm she works for is just one other woman. She's been working with her for, I think, over 10 years now. Mm. So they have a good working relationship. But yeah, the work can be a bit up and down. So this flexibility has been something that's worked out well for her and the woman she works with. Were there any other cost savings that you guys were able to find? Yeah, there were a few other big items beyond childcare. Probably the second biggest area of savings that we found, something that might be meaningful to our audience, was taxes. So when I lost my income, I lost my income taxes and Social Security and Medicare and all those other payments that are related to income. So it's hard to really put a number on this because who can do all the math that's involved with figuring out your taxes? But we estimated that we're probably saving about $14,000 just in taxes that I don't have to pay because I'm not working. And I imagine that you'd be in a lower tax bracket, too, if you're filing jointly. Yeah, that's what we're thinking. And so just to restate the income picture here, so I'm, I'm not working anymore, but we have my wife's income and income from the rental property. But in talking with our accountant, this was even before we left, about taxes from the income property, her thought was that most rental properties on paper don't actually make any money because you can deduct from that income all the costs of running the place, including your mortgage and maintenance costs, as well as the depreciation of the house. So let's say you have a $300,000 house. You can depreciate that over 30 years and subtract $10,000 each year from the income that you're pulling in. So at the end of the day, we think we aren't going to owe income taxes on this rental property even though it is generating some spending cash for us while we're traveling. Yeah, and that's really because the, the money that you're getting in that rent is going to basically pay down the mortgage that you've got in that house. So that's, instead of actually putting money directly into your pocket, it's freeing up money that you don't have to take out of your pocket to pay off that loan. That and the depreciation, which really doesn't make a lot of sense because most houses tend to go up in value over time. I mean, of course, you have to put maintenance dollars into them and everything. Yeah. But it's this kind of loophole that they let us take a deduction for. So we'll take it. Yeah, I mean, the trick, so I've got the rental property too. And I was actually just doing my taxes yesterday on it for for 2015. And um, I actually don't depreciate that because for one thing, I don't need to. Basically, I don't make enough money on it. Once I deduct my mortgage interest and some of that other stuff, I've got a manager that looks after the property. So once I deduct sort of all those expenses, then there's really nothing much left over. Now, one thing, if you're depreciating property, if you do go to sell it later on, then you might have to pay more capital gains tax later on if it's, had a, uh, if it's appreciated in value. 
Uh, that's something that happened to us with the unit that my wife had owned here in Australia, where she had been depreciating it every year since she owned it. And then when we actually sold it, we had to pay quite a bit of tax because it had a significant capital gain since the time that she had bought it. Yeah, I think there's a threshold there where below a certain amount of gain, you don't have to pay taxes on it. Plus, if you keep track of all of your home improvements over the years, yeah. keep those receipts, um, you can subtract any home improvements costs from the capital gains on the property. Right, yeah, and you can also amortize those on your taxes as well. There's, there's all kinds of different ways you can treat it, but I think the trick with that is yeah. to to basically set your depreciation at the minimum that it needs to be in order to make it so that you're not paying any tax in a given year on that house. And now, of course, I'm no accountant or tax professional or anything, so <laughs> don't take my word for it, but this is just what I've kind of done for my own investigations doing my own taxes over the last few years since we've been renting this place. Yeah, and I don't pretend to know a whole lot about this stuff either, but uh, we've we've had several conversations with our accountant about this whole thing um, before we left. And yeah. Another area where we save costs beyond child care and taxes was in health insurance. Because my wife is self-employed, we actually shop for her health insurance every year and, and our family plan, and she pays for our family's health insurance plan. So we had a, a pretty good idea of what the health insurance costs were that we were facing. And what we found is that when we were traveling, for one thing, her health insurance didn't cover us once we left the country. Hmm. So it didn't make sen any sense for us to be paying for it anyways while we we're going to be traveling. But what we did do is we figured out a combination of travel medical insurance while we were out of the country and short-term medical insurance for the periods that we came back to the U.S. And these plans are not comprehensive coverage. They're really what you might call a catastrophic plan. It's, it's if you have an emergency, you have an accident, you go to the hospital and it pays for your treatment. It doesn't cover regular appointments or checkups or vaccines or anything like that. It truly is insurance rather than what most comprehensive health insurance plans are, which is just a form of prepayment. Right. Now, because we were doing this, these plans don't qualify for the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, which means that we would have to pay the Obamacare tax fines during the months that we didn't have comprehensive coverage. But we did all that math, and it turned out that even with paying those fines, we were going to be saving half of what we would have paid over the year for comprehensive health insurance for our family. So instead of paying something around $12,000 for the year, we were paying about $6,000 with all the fines and everything included. Yeah, that Obamacare thing sounds like a complete nightmare. I mean, even with the mess that the Australian medical system is, I don't envy you guys over there. I mean, whatever. It's not like health insurance has ever been uncomplicated in this country. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you what the worst thing is about Obamacare. So Obamacare forces us to buy dental insurance for both of our kids. Dental insurance is something like, I don't know, maybe 500 bucks a year per person, which, you know, going to the dentist a couple of times even getting like a cavity filled is probably cost less than $500. Yeah, even if you get an x-rays every time you go, it's like, you know, maybe 250 a visit or something like that, you know, so maybe you break even. You usually only get x-rays like every two years anyways. Right, so who needs dental insurance in the first place? But the kicker is that I had to buy it for my daughter when she was an infant before she had teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so kids don't even go and see the dentist until they're about two years old, and yet we had to pay $1,000 of dental insurance for my toothless daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so what we did was when we took my son in for one of his checkups, 
We took her in too. She had no teeth, but we brought her into the dentist, sat her in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> what was the diagnosis? Oh, she's got no teeth. <laughs> the worst case I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. We got a free toothbrush out of it. So it was money well spent. <laughs> and that's the worst thing about Obamacare, huh? <laughs> <laughs> this affects all of us. Other than that, it's all right. So anyways, we did up this whole budget, and there were some other little cost savings here and there. There were also some more expenses, such as travel expenses. But at the end of the day, what we found is that with my wife working about 20 hours a week, that we could break even with our current scenario. And just to be clear, that wasn't an overall break even. We were still about $20,000 in the hole for the year. Right. <laughs> but we were spending that $20,000 doing something that we wanted to do and spending more time together as a family. Right. So if anyone's interested in seeing some of these numbers, my wife and I have started a blog about this whole trip and how we did it and why called abroadlife.com. That's abroad-life.com. And one of the posts we have on there is called The Best Way to Lose $20,000. And we spell out all of these expenses that we've just kind of run through. And we'll link to that on the show notes. Okay, so it sounds like you guys had the finances figured out. And at that point, did you just decide to push the button and go ahead with it? Pretty much. I mean, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a tenant yet. We hadn't figured out the healthcare thing at first. So there were a lot of unanswered questions, but we kind of said, well, if we're going to do this, we just need to start doing everything at once and just try to make it happen. So I think the day that my office told me that I couldn't work remotely and that Erin's office said that she could, we downloaded the audiobook of Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek, which kind of gives people a recipe for doing something like we're doing where you can work remotely or set up some small business that allows you the freedom to get out and travel the world. So that was kind of inspirational, um, listening to that as we were starting to go through and, and figure out how we were going to make this work. I was listening to that audiobook at around the same time you were, I think, coincidentally. <laughs> and uh, my understanding is that you're actually supposed to start a business before you start traveling around. <laughs> you're supposed to get your income stream. So I think what you've done would be better called the zero-hour work week. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least for me. <laughs> yeah. Although you have outsourced at least part of your uh, workload to Australia, <laughs> that being the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that is my business plan, is to get this podcast to turn a profit so that I never have to work <laughs> yeah, again. Well, that, that's where it's headed. <laughs> so get working on that. <laughs> yeah, except, you know, you're supposed to outsource it to a country where cost of living and everything is less expensive than the one that you're currently in. <laughs> Australia is not that country. <laughs> so there was a lot to figure out. That following weekend, we started unpacking our house and sorting things out and getting things into storage and figuring out what we were going to sell on Craigslist. <laughs> really just purging through all our stuff so that we could clear the house out for renters. But of course, we didn't have renters yet. So we also, I think that weekend, started going to a couple of open houses in the area and talking to some realtors and trying to find somebody we could work with to list the house. And we ended up listing the house shortly thereafter. And our idea was, of course, we weren't getting rid of our furniture and everything. We wanted to rent the house fully furnished, and we even wanted to include all utilities. So it was essentially turnkey for anybody who was coming in to live there. So in addition to working with a realtor and listing the house on the typical real estate rental listings, my wife went online and got the house listed on Harvard's website, on Tufts University website, and some of the universities in the area for visiting faculty. And we ended up being contacted almost right away by someone who was going to be a visiting professor at Harvard for the following year and just needed a house to stay at. Again, we, since we were only going to be gone for a year, we didn't want to get somebody in there as a full-time tenant 
who we then have to essentially kick out when we came back the following year. Right. So this was really an ideal tenant for us. They just wanted a place they could move into, no strings attached, everything set up for them. And for us, it was a reliable tenant who was going to move out at the end of the year when we wanted to move back in. So we really lucked out there. So once we had a tenant for our house, and there was some process there in getting the agreements and everything together, but we sorted that all out working with our realtor. That was when we fully committed to taking this trip because at that point we did not have a place to live <laughs> as of September 1st. So then we started booking places to stay. As I said, we had started applying for some of these house-sitting gigs. We had actually already had a trip planned to visit my wife's family in England for two weeks at the end of August. So that was when we were leaving. And really all we did was change our return flight. <laughs> did you work out when you were going to actually be changing it to? <laughs> yeah, we had decided that we wanted to come back for the holidays. So we just picked a date in early December when we could get a cheap flight back and booked it. But what we didn't know was where we were going to be during those three months that we were in Europe. Right. So you had the one trip booked to England, which was what you said, two weeks. Right. But then after that, it was sort of, <laughs> we'll figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's really how this whole trip has been the whole time. There's always been something that we didn't have figured out as we kind of jumped into it. But we just kind of trusted in ourselves to be able to put it all together once we started moving. And so far, we've been able to work it all out. Mm. And I will say that having that flexibility of not knowing where we're going has created the opportunity of finding places that are cheaper to get to and cheaper to live in. So for an example, we had two weeks that we needed to fill between two of our house-sitting gigs. One of them was in Switzerland, and one was in Brittany, France. We needed to get from Switzerland to France and find somewhere cheap to stay in the interim. <laughs> we ended up settling on Marseille, France, really for no other reason than we wanted to be in a place where we didn't have to drive, for a reason I'll get into a little later. <laughs> we could get a cheap flight from Switzerland to southern France, and we could take a train and then rent a car from Marseille to get to our next house sit in Brittany. So that's kind of how we've been doing this thing, is just piecing it together as we've gone along with whatever, <laughs> whatever cheap travel options we can find along the way. Have you been using much Airbnb and that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's exactly what we do when we do rent a place. We prefer to do that rather than renting hotels or resorts or anything like that because we like to really just kind of live in the neighborhoods and, and have a kitchen, be able to make our own meals and do all of that. And you can really just get a lot more for your money when you're renting apartments rather than hotels or resorts or anything like that. Yeah, I found that even when I was traveling with my previous job, if we were going to be on a job site for three or four weeks or something like that, then would hire a house for, you know, get four people staying in there and cook dinner every night. It's a much better quality of life, I think, if you can make it work. Yeah, you just feel more like you're living like a local rather than just visiting a place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So how much time did you have after you made this firm decision to do it before you had to leave to go to England? Well, I think my, as I said, my wife sent her original email at the beginning of May to have the initial idea. I think by the end of May, we had a tenant and that gave us June, July, and half of August to get everything else done before we got out the door. And so from that point forward, we spent every weekend just ransacking our house, getting everything packed up. We sold one of our cars. We had to figure out what to do with our pets. We have a dog and a cat. And luckily, my wife's parents were gracious enough to take them for us during this trip. Yeah. We had to figure out things like the health insurance and the cell phones while we were traveling. Obviously, because my wife's working remotely, we needed a reliable internet everywhere we were going. We had to figure out what to do with our mail. So all of our mail is getting forwarded to our sister. She's thankfully taking care of that for us. And even things like just setting up all of our accounts on auto payment, 
going around her house and finishing that last 5% of every project that I've never finished. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst part. You know, the touch of paint on the door trim and, <laughs> yeah, and the light switch covers. Exactly. <laughs> All of that stuff. So that was how I was spending most of my time. Yeah. And just getting, you know, getting new linens and things for our tenants. We really wanted to present this place as a, maybe not a luxury rental, but at least a high-end rental. We wanted the people to really feel like they were getting their money's worth in this place and, and felt like they were being taken care of. So we bought some new linens and new rugs and new throw pillows and all this stuff to kind of spruce the place up a bit. Yeah. By the time you left, <laughs> you're probably <laughs> probably wondering why you never did that in the first place. It's like we've been living in a hovel and now we've made it all nice for these uh, tenants. <laughs> That's the thing. Once we got the toys and all the junk picked up, we looked around the house. And I'm like, wow, this place really looks great. <laughs> we should just stay here. <laughs> So yeah, so it was a lot to do. We had a task list that we made for ourselves that was over 200 items, and it just kept Jeez. growing day by day. Yeah. <laughs> and those are just the things that made it onto the task list before we even, you know, a lot of things we just realized they needed to be done and just went out and did them. Right. And again, on our Broad Life blog, we were keeping track of a lot of this stuff. So if you want to get a sense of what it was like to be going through all of this, we have some writing on there about it. <laughs> the pre-launch checklist. That's right. <laughs> so that was tough. I mean, we, those four months, we were really just driving ourselves crazy trying to make this thing happen. But we felt like we just had to be all systems go to make it happen, doing everything at once just to, to get ourselves out the door. And were you still working full time that whole time? Oh, yeah, I was. And of course, that was another challenge is getting all of my work into a situation mm-hmm. where my team could pick up where I left off and keep the project moving. And my office has been, even though I wasn't able to work remotely, they've been very supportive. Although I don't have a guaranteed position when I come back, you know, I think there's a good chance that as long as they have the work, that they'll take me back there when I do decide to come back. If and when. <laughs> right. And certainly that would be my first choice for where I want to end up. Yeah. But it was a challenge getting everything sorted out on my current projects before I left. Luckily, I was working on a bigger project that we had a pretty good-sized team. And as a project manager, I was actually managing the design schedule on the project. So <laughs> we got to a point where I could, not that I was working it around my schedule, but it, things did just kind of fall into place where there was a logical stopping point for me to bow out of the project. And in fact, the project was broken into a few different construction drawing sets that we were issuing at different times. And literally the morning that I left, we issued a set of construction documents <laughs> for the project. <laughs> then that afternoon, I worked until about 5.30. And by 9 o'clock that night, we were on a plane to England. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing this now for over six months. So where have you been? So as I said, we spent the fall traveling around Europe. So we were in England for about six weeks in three different areas. We were in Devon, which is kind of the <laughs> the English Riviera, I guess, the south of the country, where there's some beaches and things. And then we were in the Cambridge area, and then we had a house sit near Leeds, England. From there, we flew to Zurich, Switzerland, for another house sit in a small town on Lake Zurich, 20 minutes south of the city of Zurich. From there, as I mentioned, we flew to southern France and spent a couple of weeks in Marseille, then took a train and a car to Brittany, which is a rural area in kind of northwest France. And that was where we had the house sit with the <laughs> cats, dogs, horses, chickens, and ducks. 
That's a beautiful area. I've spent some time up there with my travels. Yeah, it really was. And we were there in the fall and, you know, the leaves were falling and we were picking chestnuts off the ground and roasting <laughs> chestnuts with the kids and yeah. carving pumpkins and doing all this, all these fun kind of fall activities. So that's great. And it was a nice contrast from some of the other places that we had been in, which were more like cities to just be in this rural place. And it was just such a rich environment for the kids with all the animals. And, you know, they were, my son was out feeding the chickens every day and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> helping to take care of all the animals. So that was, that was really a great experience. Experience. Yeah. From there, we went on to Lisbon, Portugal, which a number of people had recommended to us. And we just loved it there. That's a beautiful city. And then after that, we flew to Brussels in Belgium, where we had friends who were serendipitously uh, going on a two-week vacation back to the States while we were there. So they let us stay in their place while they were traveling. So it was kind of a, an informal house sit, I guess. <laughs> and then that got us into December when we had our flight back to the States. So we flew back to the States in December spent most of December at my parents' house in Maine. And then for the holidays, we drove down to New Jersey to spend the holiday with my wife's family. Ooh, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. I mean, you haven't been anywhere until you've been to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so after the holidays, again, part of the motivation of us taking this trip in the first place was all the snow that we had had in Boston the following winter. So we had decided that we were going to skip winter this year. So we flew down to Florida to stay at my parents' winter house down there for a few weeks. <laughs> And then from there, we went south. So we just spent the month of February in Panama. And as we're recording this, we're currently in Puerto Rico. And by the time we finish, God knows where you'll be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by the time we finish this episode, I'll probably be sitting back at my desk in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you headed next? We're on the western side of Puerto Rico right now. And then we're staying at another place on the eastern side of the island next month. And then from there, we're going on to the Dominican Republic. And after that, it looks like we're going to be probably heading back to Maine for a bit. And then, and then finally, we're getting back to New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, if there was one place on this list that I'd want to revisit, that's the one. Exactly. <laughs> so again, if anybody wants to follow us along on this little adventure we're taking, as I said, we do have a blog at abroad-life.com. We're even documenting this whole trip. We have lots of photos of the places we've been to. And we've been doing a lot of writing about just what this experience has been like to be kind of uprooting our lives and, and going out and having this little adventure, especially the challenges and benefits of traveling with kids as young as ours. With all this traveling we've been doing, I've started to think about this concept of freedom of travel or really freedom of movement. What that means is that people should be free to travel wherever they want in the world without being restrained by governments. There's a pretty broad range of what restraint can mean. It can be something as simple as somebody putting a pair of handcuffs on you, which restricts your motion. Then obviously imprisonment is a restraint on your movement. And if you broaden that out to something like East Berlin with the Berlin Wall, you have a condition where a whole city could be effectively imprisoned within the walls of that city. Then the flip side to that, which is a little bit different, is exclusion, where the government in one region excludes people from outside that region from entering it. And in doing this, they might treat citizens or residents of that region differently than people from outside the region. This concept of freedom of movement is something that's really fundamental to a lot of modern nations. One thing that was critical in the founding of the United States was that citizens would have the ability to move back and forth between the various states at will so that you wouldn't have border controls between the individual states and people could buy property and settle down wherever they chose to within the boundaries of the country. 
But even though people have the ability to move freely around the states within their country, there are still restrictions at the borders on who can come in and out. And even citizens may find themselves restricted in some ways when traveling into and out of even their own country. I think there's really two fundamental means of restricting people's movements. One is obviously the initiation of force, where you can compel somebody to stay in one place or not to enter one place by threatening them with physical force. The second means of restraining people's movement is what I would call architectural restraints. I'm sure someone else has come up with a more uh, formal word for that, but this is an architecture, so we have to talk about architecture sometimes. <laughs> what I mean by architectural restraints is that it's possible to restrict someone's movement by creating walls and spaces, something like a prison cell, where their movement is restrained, but you're not necessarily threatening them with force while they're in there. You know what else you can use to restrain movement? What's that? Shrubbery. <laughs> True. <laughs> as long as they don't have a good pair of hedge trimmers or a flying car. <laughs> Well, can't hold in the anarchists. They've got the flying cars. <laughs> so governments obviously use the threat of force to either imprison people or exclude people from certain territories or the nation as a whole at the border. And they can also use these architectural means of having something like a wall or a fence along a border or just taking advantage of natural impediments such as an ocean or a mountain range or something like that. Right. So the idea of exclusion, so we mentioned shrubbery, which if you recall from some of our previous discussions, is something that you typically have around your own private property. Now, private property is in some sense defined as an area where you can legitimately exclude people from traveling. There's a flip side to this as well, which is that you can also choose to include anyone and invite anyone who you'd like to come onto your property without them being restrained and getting there. So situations can arise where you might be perfectly willing to invite someone onto your property, but the government of whatever area you're living in prevents them from getting there. Now, from the perspective of anarchism, this would be considered a form of aggression by the government against you, in that they're interfering with how you can use your private property. <laughs> So why is freedom of movement important? I can certainly reflect on the personal benefits that I've seen from the time that we spent traveling. And I don't just mean going on a two-week vacation to a resort somewhere. <laughs> the kind of traveling that at least we're trying to do during this trip is really moving to a place and living there as if we were a local. So for the most part, as we've said, we're renting apartments rather than staying in hotels. We're going out and shopping at the grocery stores with the locals, going to farmer's markets, making our own food, hanging our laundry out the window to dry, <laughs> using the local transportation and parks. Yeah, and that's something that when I was doing a lot of traveling for work as well, that for the most part, I would be working with some local crews or at least some sort of local representative or something like that. And I really kind of took pride in the fact that I was really mixing in with the locals as opposed to sort of hopping on a tour bus every day to go see some statue or building or something like that right especially once i had seen enough you know a few cities and done the sightseeing thing in a few places i really started to appreciate the sort of small experiences more of of really mixing it up with the locals yeah i mean we found that too it's we do all the sightseeing stuff but first of all when you have two kids under the age of five the way we figure it is you probably see and do about 30 percent of the tourist stuff that you would like to do so if you go to a museum you take in about 30% of the museum before the kids go nuts and you have to leave. <laughs> yeah. 
So for us, this trip isn't really about the sightseeing. It's really just about living the life that we want to live and spending time together as a family. And in doing that, we've really felt like we're immersing ourselves in these places that we're traveling to. When we're renting a private apartment, the person we're renting from is a great resource just to point out you know, where the local markets are or things to do, the good restaurants in the neighborhood. And especially when we do house sitting, the people that we've stayed with have really treated us as guests. It's funny, we feel like they're doing us a service by allowing us to stay in their house for free for a couple of weeks. But they're really grateful for us coming and helping them out so that they can be carefree on their own vacation. So we've really built some great relationships with these people that we've stayed with. You can get a full experience of a place even if you're only there for maybe a couple of weeks. If you're there for maybe one week, that might be cutting it a little bit close. You, know, you don't really take the time to fully immerse yourself necessarily, but if you're there for two or three weeks, that's usually plenty of time to really get to know the place and maybe even learn some of the language and some of the local customs. On our Abroad Life blog, which I mentioned earlier, I had written one post called Why Travel? And I talked about the difference between being a tourist and being a traveler. And I think the real distinction there is that as a tourist, you're really just kind of looking in from the outside at a place. You know, you're kind of doing the surface level stuff. You get on a tour bus, go and see the sights and go back to your hotel. Whereas a traveler, you're really immersing yourself in the place and in the culture. And in order to do that, you need to open yourself up to empathy and humility and really be willing to be challenged in the way that you approach your daily life and also allow other people to help you in navigating the unfamiliar aspects of the place where you're staying. So by getting out of this comfort zone, it really kind of puts you in the shoes of the people who are living in this place, understanding what the environmental conditions are that shape their culture. As an example of that, we spent a month in Panama where during the month that we were there, we had running water in our house, I think six or seven days <laughs> out of the month's stay that we were there. Uh, there were a number of reasons for that. <laughs> but when you're in that kind of condition, for one thing, you have to reach out to the locals and understand how other people are dealing with this issue. You also find yourselves doing things that when you see the locals doing them, you think they're kind of crazy. <laughs> but once you're in that situation, it makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> yeah, it probably doesn't take too many days without a flushing toilet before your perspective changes. Yeah, you start thinking on your toes pretty quick <laughs> after a couple of days of that. One solution we came to in, while we were in Panama was on our first day there, we drove into the local town and we saw some cars kind of stopped at the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. My wife looked and said, oh, you know, I think they're getting water over there. And we kind of laughed and said, oh, great. You know, I guess if the water runs out, then we'll know which pipe at the side of the road to get our water from. <laughs> three days later <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough by the end of the week we were standing right at the side of the road in line with everybody else in one of our water containers from this pipe by the side of the road <laughs> and so having those experiences just really gives you empathy for what the locals in the area are going through and an understanding of how their culture has developed around their community and their ability to help each other kind of solve these problems that come up within their environment. You don't really even have to get into situations that are that drastic in order to reap these same sort of benefits that Tim's talking about. Really just interacting with people at, on an everyday basis gives you a better window into what they're all about and it just helps you to understand that there's a bigger world out there than the one that you grew up in. Yeah, one of the most positive experiences we've had traveling with our young kids 
is seeing all the attention that our kids get from total strangers <laughs> in all of these places. We've had more conversations or interactions with people <laughs> just talking about our kids. Yeah. Everybody wants to see them and you know, pick them up and kiss them on the cheek. <laughs> and it's really heartwarming to have those experiences in places where you feel like such an outsider. That really does just immediately break down any kind of fear or apprehension you have about people in different cultures. When you've had some experiences like that, when you go back home and you see people who haven't had the same sort of experience or maybe have done some traveling but haven't gotten the same sort of takeaways from it, you know, when they start getting into sort of nationalism and, uh, you know, our country's the best and <laughs> that, that kind of nonsense, it's just, you know, it puts it into perspective. It just makes them look so provincial and petty, regardless of how great a country might be in terms of GDP or whatever garbage. <laughs> There's more important stuff out there than that. Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways we've had from this is that in our American culture, yeah, I mean, yeah, the toilet's flush and the plumbing works and, <laughs> and that's all great. But by having all of these kind of impersonal systems run our life, we've really lost the need for living in an interdependent community. Whereas when you go to some place like Panama, you really see how essential their community and family is just to allow people to get by in their daily lives. And for us, I think seeing that sense of community in some of these places has really made us wish that there were a stronger community structure in the place where we live. Freedom of movement also has an effect on government policies, and this is due to the phenomenon known as voting with your feet. And what this means is that you can move from one state to another, or, or from one country to another, in order to seek out a better position for yourself in terms of maybe tax rates or personal freedoms, the ability to start or run a business, or maybe some of the services that are provided in that other area. A few examples of this are issues where there are different legislations within some of the states in America. For example, different states have different policies on abortion, on same-sex marriage, or even just tax rates. For example, uh, we're from New Hampshire, which has no state sales tax or income tax, and it's pretty common for people from Massachusetts to drive up across the border to shop in Nashua, New Hampshire. Now, technically, those people are committing some sort of tax evasion, I think, because I'm pretty sure they're actually supposed to report whatever shopping they do on their tax return at the end of the year. I'm sure that no one ever does. <laughs> yeah, Massachusetts gets you coming and they get you going. <laughs> the other thing these people do is they live in Massachusetts for a while, vote for all these politicians who increase all their taxes, <laughs> and then they move up to New Hampshire and decide to commute in. So. And then they start voting for the same kind of politicians up there. <laughs> right. Now, another reason why people might travel temporarily is medical tourism which is where they might go to some other place like Thailand or India or somewhere like that, where they can get a perfectly qualified doctor to perform some sort of surgical procedure at a fraction of the cost that it would be in a first world country. Yeah, when we were in Panama, one of our neighbors had injured her shoulder at some point, and they went to the local hospital, you know, went to the emergency room, had an emergency doctor, had a bone specialist come in and look at it, got an x-ray, you know, this, <laughs> this whole treatment. Mm -hmm. And they weren't covered by their medical insurance. They didn't have travel medical insurance like we have. So they got the bill. And for all that, it was $200. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of puts some perspective into, you know, people think the U.S. health system is some sort of free market where you can go to any other place in the world and, and you'll see something that's much more like a free market than what the U.S. has. Yeah. And go figure, it's cheaper. <laughs> right. And when people take a trip like this, generally, 
it's cheaper for the whole flight, the medical procedure, as well as a hotel and maybe a bit of vacation time, recovery time in that foreign country, and then the flight back, of course. <laughs> and so all of that ends up being cheaper than it would be even with insurance and everything to have the same procedure done in the U.S. Right. Another aspect of this competition between regulatory regimes that's created by people's ability to move from one place to another is that it gives people the ability to escape someplace with strict regulations or even threats from the government to their personal security to go to someplace where they think that their own safety and their ability to acquire and keep their own property might be better protected. And the upshot of people being able to travel like this is that it puts pressure on their home state or their home government to change their policies to something that's more favorable and less restrictive so that it's almost like a market competition for better policy. And beyond short-term travel, people also seek to move permanently from one place to another, which of course I've done from the U.S. to Australia. And there are a number of reasons why people would want to do this as well. Uh, one is, of course, my case, which is that my family is essentially an international family where my wife's from Australia originally, I'm from the U.S. originally, so obviously one or the other of us is going to have to immigrate to a different country in order to be together. Another reason people might want to move permanently from one country to another is to seek out a lower cost of living. When we were in Panama, there were a number of expatriate uh, retirees living in the area who spoke English. There was a little community of them in the little beach area where we were staying. These are people who have some savings, and they've realized that they can get a lot more for their money by going to a place like Panama, which has much lower cost of living than the United States. And this is essentially what we're doing as part of our travels. For the most part, we're trying to seek out places where we can reduce our own cost of living during the year, which helps to offset my loss of income and minimize the amount that my wife has to work to cover a cost of living for the year. So obviously there's a benefit to me, those expats, in doing this. And there's also a benefit to the region that we're moving to because when people like us travel there or move there, we're bringing cash into that area that can help to improve their local economy. Where if we weren't able to travel there, they would have to be exporting more goods or improving their own local economy so another reason why people might immigrate to a different area is to seek better job opportunities. And this could be poor people moving to an area where there's higher wages, as well as someone who's moving to an area where they can start a business that'll be more feasible in that new area than it would have been in their original country. And of course, this is where issues of immigration start to get controversial, because if you've got people coming from one area to compete with people who are already established in a certain area, then it can create a bit of conflict between the two groups. So we'll get into that in a bit more detail later on. Another reason why people might move from one nation to another is to get access to benefits and services like better health care or better education, better housing, or in some places even just welfare. And this can also be controversial when these services are being provided or funded by tax dollars taken by the government from the people who are already living there. And of course, one of the most important reasons why someone might move from one place to another is that they're refugees from an area where there's a war going on or where the quality of life is so poor that the only option they have is to go somewhere else. Yeah, when we were traveling in Europe in the fall, the Syrian refugee crisis from the Syrian civil war uh, was really a big topic of discussion. A lot of Syrian refugees had come through Turkey and were trying to find places to go throughout the rest of the European Union. 
And so these European countries were trying to determine how many refugees they would allow to settle in their countries. So as we mentioned before, this ability to get out of the place where you are when things go bad could really be a life or death decision for some people. We've seen how individuals can benefit from the ability to move between different regions. But there are some reasons why governments would put up restrictions against completely free travel. We'll have a look at the ends that these measures are meant to achieve, and then we'll discuss some of the means that governments use to achieve them. Probably one of the most obvious reasons would be to keep criminals out of the country. Controlling the influx of people at the border of a country is probably a lot easier than trying to control somebody once they're in a country. So if you've got some gang of murderers or robbers running around the countryside holding people up and taking their money, obviously that's a tricky situation to contain, but if you can prevent those people from getting into the country in the first place, then you can keep things a lot safer at a much lower cost. This is obviously a valid concern for anyone living in the country, and it's probably something that even minimal state libertarian types would get on board with. However, we like to look at things in a slightly less conventional way, and there are some reasons why this might not be quite as effective as it would seem. For one thing, any convicted criminals who have been convicted of a crime either in the country or overseas in another country, if the criminal justice system is functioning, then these guys would have already been caught, tried, and have already served their time in prison or done whatever other reparations they needed to do. Otherwise, they'd still be in prison, presumably. Mm -hmm which obviously they wouldn't be traveling to Europe's country if that was the case. Now, of course, that only applies to convicted criminals, but there are plenty of other criminals out there who never get caught. If someone is out there who has committed a crime but hasn't been caught and tried and identified, then it's unlikely that a border control system would be able to flag these people unless they had their own means of somehow quizzing every person that came in, putting them up to a lie detector test or something like that to see if they've committed any previous crimes or some sort of thought crime thing to see if they intend to commit a crime once they come into the country. <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> with current technology, this sounds kind of ridiculous, but those two scenarios are really the only two scenarios that present with a potential criminal coming into the country. Now, there are some cases of people who might be on a most wanted list where there are at least suspects of a crime. However, these are generally only effective for some of the most notorious criminals who are worthy of attention by all international police firms or enforcement agencies. In the current system where these agencies are essentially local monopolies, there are a couple of facets to that arrangement that don't really work well for catching these most wanted people. One is the tried and true method, especially in Hollywood movies where someone commits a crime and then runs off to Mexico or something to escape being prosecuted. Now, in this case, it's kind of ridiculous that someone could commit a crime in Texas and then run across the border to Mexico and live without much fear of being caught. There are policies such as extradition where one country can essentially request that another government capture and hand over that suspect. However, it takes an agency that is able to cover a broader region in order to prevent this sort of loophole from being exploited. Over in Europe, they have Interpol, which is a pan-European police agency, which is able to go into basically any of the EU countries and track down any suspects of a crime. At the same time, most of the governments in the developed world will cooperate with each other in order to capture and extradite suspects. In episode three, we looked at what would happen in an anarchic society. And in this case, we proposed that there might be some sort of private security agencies 
who would have the ability to track down and capture suspects of crimes. Now, in this case, there's no reason that these firms would have to be limited to any specific geographical area. So you'd have essentially a multinational security firm that could have operatives working all over the globe to try to catch people. And furthermore, which is probably even more important, is that you'd have competing firms that would also cover different areas or would compete with each other in some of the same areas. So instead of having one government agency who's trying to track somebody down and then have to hand over the investigation to some other government agency in a different country, you'd have multiple competing firms, all of whom might be investigating at the same time and who have an incentive to catch the crook. Now, it could be, as we discussed before, there's different ways that they might be compensated for if they actually catch the guy. But again, you can go back and listen to episode three for some more details on how that might work. It's likely that in an anarchic world, you would probably still have private security checks at ports of entry. And it's possible that places like airports and train stations would work together with security firms to assist them in identifying any wanted people who are coming through their port. Because in some sense, if they allowed a wanted person through their port, then they could conceivably be held accountable for allowing criminals to pass through their port. There's no reason that security checks would be limited to airports and train stations and that sort of thing. I mean, without a socialized security in the form of uh, monopoly police, people might come up with all kinds of other solutions for their own security and the security of their businesses and homes. Essentially, wanted people who are coming into the country would need to be treated in the same way as wanted people who are already in the country. In other words, the border can't be relied on as the sole means of catching these people. You need to have effective policing in place really throughout the region and throughout the world in order to catch people who are suspected of having committed a crime. In addition to keeping criminals out of a region, another reason why governments might want to initiate border controls is to attempt to keep disease from spreading from one region to another. One way they could attempt to do this would be to have health screenings at the border for people coming from areas that are known to have certain diseases, or to have screenings for people who have visible signs of some disease. However, this isn't very comprehensive. For one thing, people infected with certain diseases may not have any presentable symptoms when they show up at the border. As we've been traveling over the past few months, there's been this concern about the Zika virus, which has popped up in some areas. And in fact, Panama is one area where I don't think they're sure that it's there yet, but there have been some concerns that it could be spreading to Panama. But when we flew back through Florida on the way to Puerto Rico, there was no screening for the Zika virus, and that's because it doesn't have any visible symptoms for people who contract it. And so there's really nothing that they can do at the border about it. As I recall, when we came through Florida, they basically had like a paper sign taped to the wall that said, you know, if you think you've contracted the Zika virus, please identify yourself to the authorities for a health screening. <laughs> yeah. In some cases, all they can do is ask people to self-report. And there's probably plenty of people that don't even know what the symptoms of Zika are, even if they had it. Because it, wasn't it basically, for most people, it was just like almost having a flu or something like that, right? I think so. Yeah. So, you know, some of them just thought, oh, well, I, I just got sick. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I had a similar experience, too. Well, I've had plenty of experiences like that, but I flew into China in, I think it was 2004, 2003 or 2004, 
around the time there was, I think it was the Asian bird flu was the one that was going around at the time. <laughs> it was one of these times when everyone over there was wearing like the paper masks over their faces. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, there are still people in, in Beijing that just like wear those things all day long. <laughs> Air quality in Beijing is bad enough that it's probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> this is my first time going to China and the plane lands and <laughs> everyone's just sitting on the plane. And then these guys come on the plane in full biohazard suits, like the guys in E.T., you know, (laughs) and they've got this gun thing. What it is, it's like an infrared thermometer or something like that. They just go seat to seat, pointing this thing at everyone's heads. (laughs) A little bit ominous. (laughs) And I was thinking like, well, what happens if they actually get someone? Are they going to incinerate the plane? (laughs) What's going to happen? But uh, luckily we got away. I think we were clean. Yeah. And then on another one, when you're talking about self-reporting, this is actually on the same trip, but on the way back, I got stuck in Shanghai for a night on my way out just because I have no idea why. Just don't ever fly Shanghai Air. <laughs> and I had dinner at this hotel that I booked, and I don't know what it was, but I got some sort of food poisoning. And it was, I mean, <laughs> having been in China for three weeks, I had already had plenty of food poisoning <laughs> in those last three weeks. I think I lost like 15 pounds in three weeks, you know, and I'm pretty strong <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was just the icing on top of the cake, and it was just, it was pretty horrible. So the whole morning, I'm, you know, vomiting and everything. Ugh. I think I caught my flight around 1 or 2 p.m. or something like that. Oh, you know? And by then, I was okay. Like, I kind of worked it out of my system. <laughs> you go through the customs thing, and it's like a whole kind of medical questionnaire card you've got to fill out. And it's like, you know, have you, have you in the last 48 hours vomited or any of this other stuff and i'm just like nope <laughs> walked right through i'm not reporting that because obviously like what i had wasn't any sort of communicable disease it's not like i was going to give it to anybody else it was just food poisoning uh-huh. so, right that was the first time i defrauded the chinese government <laughs> but it wouldn't be the last A similar question we've had to deal with is on the immigration forms, they ask if you've had any contact with farm animals. (laughs) And of course, most places you go in the world, it's kind of hard to avoid contact with farm animals where they're, (laughs) you see cattle being driven down the street or there's a flock of sheep that, you know, goes across or. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, we used to own chickens. I was contacting farm animals every day, you know, go hop on the plane. (laughs) I think it might actually talk more specifically about handling animals, which we're not doing so much, but I don't know. There've probably been times when I should have answered yes on that question. (laughs) (laughs) Although I've heard from other people that all they do if you answer yes is they basically stop you and scrub your shoes at the border (laughs) so that you don't get any. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like, at least coming into Australia, they've got all these signs about report if you've got any freshwater fishing gear and that kind of stuff, as well as if you've got any boots with mud on them or anything like that, they want you to report that. Yeah. And obviously it's so that you're not bringing in some sort of, you know, soil-borne pathogens or whatever. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a self-reporting thing and probably a lot of people just either lie or don't really think about it. Yeah, and this is where, you know, if the whole border entry process was much more efficient, maybe you would have more people reporting some of these things. But when you get off a seven-hour flight and then have to stand in line for two hours going through the border process, nobody's going to answer any question that's going to cause them to have to spend more time there. Yeah, talking to some bureaucrat. (laughs) Right. In Australia, they even have some restrictions on bringing stuff in from other states. If you're driving from Victoria to South Australia, there's basically a whole lot of nothing in between Melbourne and Adelaide. (laughs) In the middle of nowhere, you cross the border of South Australia. There's just a quarantine bin on the side of the road with a sign just saying, 
deposit all food items here. <laughs> just kind of stop, get out, throw out your apple core or whatever and keep going. <laughs> you know, how many people actually stop and do that? <laughs> I don't think I've ever taken a flight where we've gotten to our next destination, opened up our carry-on and, you know, haven't had some kind of a food item in there that, we, <laughs> that we've brought with us for the flight. Yeah. There's always a granola bar or an apple or something in there. Usually they're not too concerned about any sort of processed food because <laughs> they recognize that even pests won't go after that stuff. <laughs> but if it's apples and stuff like that, and the reason they do it in South Australia is because they're afraid of fruit fly. And apparently they've eradicated or almost eradicated fruit fly from South Australia. <laughs> really? I can't even eradicate them from my kitchen. <laughs> There's a lot of wine growing regions and vineyards and uh -huh. produce like that within South Australia. So, of course, everyone's got to chip in and do their part to protect the farmers. Is that why they brought all the frogs in to eat the fruit flies? <laughs> that's, that's the cane toads that they brought in up in uh, Queensland, yeah. And this is the thing, you know, <laughs> Australia, I think, is one of the most difficult countries, especially with this sort of quarantine customs stuff. They check everyone. There's actually a reality show which airs on primetime TV, which is called Border Security or Customs or something. There's actually more than one of them. <laughs> there's Border Security, there's Customs. We get like... New Zealand customs. <laughs> it's a hell of a primetime lineup, you know, sitting there watching other people go through customs. Oh, God. It's pure government propaganda kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Plain and simple. It's making examples out of people to say, okay, kids, this is what you shouldn't do. <laughs> of course, the irony here is that the worst pests that have been introduced to Australia have been done so intentionally, mostly by the government. So in the early, I don't know, I think the 1800s or something like that, in the early days of Australia, some of the English aristocrats brought in rabbits because they wanted to do the rabbit hunting within Australia. Uh -huh. And so, of course, these things multiplied as rabbits tend to do because there's no natural predators that would go after rabbits within Australia. I mean, <laughs> there aren't really any natural kind of carnivores here besides maybe dingoes. <laughs> but even dingoes were imported at one point. <laughs> so basically, the rabbits just multiplied like crazy and started outcompeting all of the native marsupial bilbies and bandicoots and possums and all that stuff right <laughs> so there's just these rabbits everywhere and so you know of course what do you do to get rid of rabbits well you bring in foxes <laughs> so the australian government brought in all these foxes to try to catch all these rabbits in the course of foxes they don't catch the rabbits they catch all the, all the native marsupials who don't know what a fox is because they've never seen a fox before in their life they don't run away from it they don't even have that fear instinct in them so it's just like a double whammy on these things <laughs> now there's these fox problems in australia we used to get them up in the hills when we were up there i told you about how our uh, our neighbor had left their chicken coop open one night and a fox came in and got all the chooks. <laughs> right. <laughs> so those were introduced. It's just like dumb and dumber. <laughs> but yeah, the cane toads up in Queensland, there's some sort of, I'm not sure if it was a beetle or a moth or something like that, that was a pest. There's a big sugar cane industry up there. And so they brought in these toads that they thought would eat these beetles and moths and stuff. The way a friend of mine described it to me, he goes, well, you know, the funny thing is that the moths fly about this high and the toad can only jump about this high. <laughs> so they didn't do a great job of catching those moths. <laughs> but of course, these things, again, they multiplied like crazy. And the thing with these cane toads, they're actually like poisonous or something. You know, so it's, it's the sort of thing where if it touches you, you get some, I don't know, warts or a rash or something like that. And so there's just these horrible, hideous looking things. And they're all over like the top end. <laughs> we're, we're going up there, uh, hoping we might have the opportunity to catch up with a few of those guys. <laughs> but will they let you take them back into South Australia? <laughs> well, we won't report them. Oh.
beyond the immediate concerns of keeping criminals out and keeping disease out, another reason governments may want to restrict who's coming into the country is to keep foreigners from coming and trying to get jobs within their country. So in effect, they think that by keeping out people who want to work, that they'll be able to protect the wage rates of citizens so that they won't have to compete with a lot of foreigners coming through the borders. So first of all, there's really a problem here from a moral standpoint. There's really no reason why somebody shouldn't be allowed to compete with other people, no matter where they are, for whatever job they want. And on top of that, when you have a minimum wage in a country, it practically guarantees that there will be illegal immigrants and that they will come to the country and work for less than the minimum wage, which will outcompete low-wage workers within the country. And this is because the existence of the minimum wage creates an opportunity for people to come in and undercut workers with comparable skills as long as the employer is willing to break the minimum wage law and pay them under the table. And because they're there illegally, they're already outside of the system. So it's impossible to enforce the minimum wage law on these illegal immigrants. If someone really wanted to defend the minimum wage, then they should let workers immigrate legally into the country so that they're in the system, they're paying taxes, and they're reporting their wages. And then the authorities can sort out who is or isn't paying the minimum wage. And on the other hand, if you want low-wage workers to be competitive with illegal immigrants, then you should drop the minimum wage law because then everybody would be competing for the going wage rate in their field, regardless of where they were born. This is a form of nationalism, basically, where people think that it's somehow virtuous that people who happen to have been born in their country deserve a job more than someone who was born in another country. It's really just kind of ridiculous and in my opinion, it actually borders on being bigotry in the same way that racism is, where you're essentially taking someone and depriving them of opportunities just based on some arbitrary factor, which is beyond their own control. Yeah, it's this mentality that the existence of nation states creates, which is that we're only going to take care of our own and let everybody else fend for themselves. And in some ways, I think that people have this perception of anarchic solutions, that it's kind of every man for himself. <laughs> and that people would just abandon some of the poorer people in the world. But I think the opposite is true. I think that if you open up borders and open up opportunities to people around the world, that that could do more to alleviate global poverty than almost any kind of charity or foreign aid or anything else that you could think of. Right, because instead of just moving money around from one group of people to another, you're actually empowering people to build their own capital, and you're offering more opportunities for productivity from everybody in the economy. And as we've said, there's this possibility for people to move from places with onerous restrictions on capital creation and property ownership. They can move from those places to places that have more opportunity and, and allow them the ability to start a business and save their earnings. So that has the effect of depleting resources from the more oppressive governments, which over time could cause those governments to collapse and hopefully be replaced with a system that's more respectful of people's right to work and of their property and savings. And besides concerns about people coming into the country and working, there's perhaps a greater concern about people coming into the country and not working. This implies that they could be unable to support themselves, in which case they might take advantage of any public services such as schools, roads, health care, or even welfare payments to keep them going. Now, the reason these people end up being destitute in the first place, I mean, first of all, they might come from a place where they don't have much or if anything. But furthermore, once they get into the country, if they're prohibited from working, 
then obviously they're going to be poor. They're going to be homeless. They're going to be starving. They're going to have health issues. <laughs> they're going to have health problems. So what do you expect to happen? <laughs> you know, so of course they're going to be in need of some services. And if the government has systems in place that offers up free schooling and welfare and requires hospitals to treat anybody who walks in the door, then there's no reason why these people wouldn't take advantage of those benefits. So a border control isn't really the solution here. If people see a problem with these entitlement programs, then they need to challenge the programs themselves. Because if you build it, they will come. And of course, another way around this as well is for people to set up private initiatives to help out these people. But of course, if everyone's losing 30% of their income to tax dollars every year, then there's a lot less money floating around that can be put towards causes such as that. Right, and of course, the government services outcompete the demand for any private charitable services. Everyone assumes that the government services are the only game in town and are sufficiently addressing all the needs of these people, whether or not they actually are. Plus, government welfare programs tend to make people think that they don't have any personal responsibility for addressing the needs of the poor within their communities or outside of their communities. That's right, because if 30% of their salary is already being taken and ostensibly redistributed to these people, then they probably feel like they've done enough already and don't really need to do any more. Yeah, this is really the same mentality about people wanting to just take care of their own. Some people might say something like, you know, don't give them my tax dollars. You know, don't spend my tax dollars on all these people who haven't paid into the system or whatever. <laughs> but look, I mean, they're not your tax dollars. Once the government takes them, they belong to the government and the government's going to spend them however they want. So it's pointless to criticize people who are the recipients of government benefits so if you want to criticize these policies, criticize the people who are taking the money in the first place, which is the government. And if you want to be in control of which causes your money goes to, then work to reduce the taking of taxes by the government and instead spend that money on charitable organizations and other institutions that will spend the money in the way that you want it to be spent. This leads us to the next reason why governments may want to restrict people coming into the country. And that is that they don't want non-citizens to vote in their elections, which ostensibly help to determine the welfare policies in the first place. So there's this idea that, you know, if you have all these immigrants coming in seeking these welfare services, and then they get to vote, that they're just going to vote for more politicians who are going to vote for more welfare for more of their relatives to come in and get on more of the welfare. So there's all this concern about immigrants coming into the country and affecting policy changes by voting that could eventually reduce the rights and the freedoms and the privileges that the native people have been voting for themselves for all these years. <laughs> and this is a real concern if you think that voting has anything to do with promoting freedom within a society. <laughs> <laughs> or changing policy. <laughs> but as we've seen over the last 200 years, the tendency even in a democracy is towards more regulation, more controls greater government power, less individual freedom. And these are all the things that the citizens and residents have ostensibly voted for themselves. <laughs> Suckers. So there are plenty of people within the country voting against freedom. Why should people coming from outside of the country be any different? And in fact, I think most people coming from outside of the country would be different because of people who are coming from more restrictive places to seek more economic and personal freedom in a place like the United States they probably have a better understanding of freedom and oppression than most of the citizens in the United States who are voting. If you look at the number of immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal, who come into a country in a given year, 
it's probably not even 1% of the total populace of the country. Now, if you had open borders, that might change, but my guess is that things would be a lot more fluid in both directions so that you'd end up with more of a steady state situation where people would be coming and going. And of course, in an anarchic society, who cares about voting? There is no voting. Who are you going to vote for? (laughs) President of Walmart? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, people treat voting as a sacrosanct thing. And sure, it has some benefits for keeping outright dictators from getting into power. Although I think that's more a result of the fact that politicians vacate their seats after four or eight years. Well, I can think of at least a couple of dictators who were elected. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So at the end of the day, we see voting as more of a charade to make people think that they're in control than something that actually puts people in control. So the fact that people might be coming from other places and participating in that charade it doesn't seem like a big concern to us. Yeah, and it's probably the last thing on an immigrant's mind. You know, it's not like someone's going to decide to swim across the Rio Grande and put up with all the risks of crossing the border and all that just so they can go cast a vote in a ballot box. <laughs> Excluding immigrants from participating in the political process. Well, alienating these people might be a goal on one side of the fence. On the other side of the fence, there's a concern about a lack of assimilation, or a failure to actually join the community. This is where you might get ghettos of immigrants from a particular country all sort of grouping together in one place and essentially alienating themselves from the broader culture of their new country. On the surface level, I would say that a lack of assimilation by one group of people isn't necessarily a problem. When we spent the month in Panama, There were a group of expatriates there who spoke English, and every Friday night they all got together at a local restaurant. Were they from all from the U.S. or from different countries? Uh, They were from different countries. One of our neighbors was a couple, one from South Africa and one from, I think, Scotland. And most of these people were retirees who had moved to Panama to get more for their money out of their retirement savings. And by and large, I don't know that they were really, had really assimilated to the Panamanian culture. In fact, I think several of them didn't even speak Spanish. But for us as newcomers coming into the country, having this network of people there actually helped us. So when we didn't have running water, our neighbors told us where to find the well to go and get it. And they told us that the well water was safe to drink, which otherwise I don't think we would have ever tried it. So I think we're going to keep talking about this concept of having localized immigrant communities as a way to ease the transition for people coming into the country and eventually bring more diversity into the places where they're settling. Now, that said, it is possible to have immigrant communities forming that could possibly become a source of criminality. I mentioned that one of the places we went to was Brussels, and we actually went there the week after the Paris attacks in November of 2015, when a handful of Muslim extremists attacked civilian targets throughout the city, including a soccer stadium and restaurants. One of the attackers, the only one believed to have survived, had come from Brussels and was suspected of having returned to Brussels in the days after the attack. So when we arrived in Brussels, there was all this paranoia and actually increased military presence throughout the city as officials were trying to keep their city safe, as well as to try to seek out this suspect in the attacks. He had come from a neighborhood called Molenbeek, which over the years has become increasingly populated by Muslim immigrants, and which has had a history of contributing to other attempted attacks in Europe in the past. So when we got to Brussels, we were there with friends who lived in the city and knew it pretty well, and weren't too concerned about the security threats. 
So we did spend the first couple of days using the public transportation and doing a little sightseeing around Brussels. However, I think on our third day there, the city announced a lockdown in effect where they were asking people to stay indoors as they tried to close in on the suspect in the Paris attacks and also became more suspicious of potential threats within the city. And that went on for most of the time that we were in Brussels. And in fact, as we're recording this in March, they only just caught the suspect a week or two ago. And shortly thereafter, there was another coordinated attack on Brussels itself, both at the airport as well as at a metro station near the EU headquarters, which is only about two stops away from where we had stayed. And sure enough, where they found the attacker was in this neighborhood of Molenbeek. So this, of course, is the greatest fear of people who are opposed to the development of immigrant communities within their cities that resist assimilation to the laws and moral standards of their region. But I think it's worth considering to what extent immigration controls did or did not play a part in creating this community that seems to be producing violent people. One issue with Molenbeek is that there seems to be this culture of kind of a code of silence <laughs> where people refuse to snitch even if they're aware of something that's going on within the community. And not only that, but this guy had a close-knit network of relatives within the neighborhood who apparently were protecting him. The way that they caught the guy was that police were watching the funeral services for the guy's brother, who was one of the other attackers in Paris, and they started following around some of the pallbearers from that funeral and eventually found a cousin or something who was sheltering this guy, and they finally flushed him out. One thing to consider here is why is a community like this becoming so insular and why wouldn't people within that community go to law enforcement to let them know about any potential threats within the community? Or especially if they knew that somebody was harboring criminals, heinous as this guy appeared to be. And I think that immigration controls actually help to create this problem. Because when you have an immigrant community that may have a number of people within it who are illegal immigrants... I think that helps to create this culture where people don't trust the local law enforcement because they're afraid that if they start to bring law enforcement into their community, that they're going to start looking around and find a lot of their relatives and friends who may be there illegally. And I may be overstating that, but I think that defining immigrants as criminals just because of the way that they came into the country helps to isolate immigrant communities, both culturally and politically, and don't feel like they should engage with law enforcement or the broader community. And in this case, it's certainly true that immigration restrictions did not prevent the initial Paris attacks, nor did they keep the attacker out of Brussels. He was already a legal resident, and I think he might have even been a citizen. Nor did they help to catch him after the attacks. I suppose it made it more difficult for him to travel to somewhere else, but that's just a matter of kind of a banal security check at an airport, more so than a sweeping policy of immigration control. Now, obviously, in this case, there were some deep-seated reasons behind why these guys chose to do these attacks. Of course, going into the various wars in the Middle East and arguably going back to colonial days and all that. However, the general concern of crime developing out of immigrant communities is more focused on typical problems of poverty, homelessness, drug addiction, drug dealing, as well as organized crime groups that can develop within these communities and then perpetrate their services in the broader community. With the exception of a terrorist attack, which is done with the intent of some sort of political objective, for the most part, the issues that arise in immigrant communities are no different than the issues that arise in other communities throughout the country. However, immigration does introduce an additional complication, which is that sometimes you could be faced with a large influx of people all coming in at the same time, 
and overwhelming the existing services that are there to support them. For example, the Syrian refugee crisis, which has been ongoing for the last year or so as of the time of this recording, where suddenly thousands of refugees show up on the doorstep of a number of first world countries. In this case, it's a bit of a shock to the system where the people living in those countries don't really have, for one thing, there might not even be enough houses to put these people up in, let alone food supplies and, of course, jobs and general financial means to support everybody. And of course, in this case, what has happened is the government have stepped in and offered to accept certain numbers of people into each country. And then the taxpayers of those countries are on the hook for supporting these people until they can become settled or until they can find somewhere else to go, I guess. However, there have been a lot of cases of people, you've seen all these memes on Facebook and stuff where people have been calling to allow immigrants into certain countries and offering to support them and to take them into their own houses. And I actually know a guy living in Germany who, he actually had a story in the newspaper about his family. His wife came across this family basically just camping out in the street or on a sidewalk or something like that. <laughs> and they, I think it was a family with, with a couple of young kids or something. And she just offered to take them into their home. Huh. And they've been supporting them for a little while. Wow. And to me, that is, that is what anarchitecture is all about, is, <laughs> or what anarchism is all about, is individuals taking responsibility, solving problems and just building those connections between other people. Hmm. But a lot of what we've seen over there is when the government gets involved, they're allowing certain people in, preventing other people from coming in. They're shifting people around from one place to another rather than just allowing people to sort of offer their own services to support these people. And so instead what's happening is the government will pick, you know, the first 10,000 people that come through the door and assign them to a certain city and just kind of dump them there, maybe give them some sort of a public space to put them up in. And then the people in that city have to figure out how to deal with them. So what's happening is there's a, basically an imbalance between the people who are looking for support and the people who are willing to support, where they're sort of hamstrung by the actions of the state to try to manage everything from the top down. So I could envision some sort of a service like a virtual message board or an almost like the Airbnb or Uber of refugees, where, <laughs> where you could essentially post that you're willing to take people on and People could post that they're looking for a place, and then you could have some sort of service that would match people up with each other. And so as I said, the core problem with the Syrian refugee crisis is the sheer number of people who have migrated all at the same time have just overwhelmed the systems that are there. Now, I think that under a policy of open borders, once it was firmly established, there might be more migration happening in a given year. However, I think that it would be much more diffuse so you'd have people migrating basically to and from every country in the world. And rather than having a whole lot of people showing up at one border all the time, they'd have a lot of different options as to where they could go. And again, if you didn't have these borders, then people would just go where they needed to be in order to find work. They'd chase where the opportunities were. Yeah, when we talk about opening borders and some of the costs associated with that, like the stress on infrastructure or the stress on the local support networks, we're really talking about kind of a transition cost. So, yeah, of course, when you first open borders, there are going to be some of these challenges. But after a period of time, if we had some kind of widespread anarchic society around the world, these initial shocks would tend to dissipate. And you would really just be talking about, as Joe said a minute ago, problems of poverty, homelessness, and crime, which people have to deal with domestically within their country, and which an anarchic world would hopefully have services and systems that could address those problems 
separate from the issue of immigration. And at the same time, I think under an anarchic system, you'd have more organic adaptation to the new reality of more people living in a certain region. We've just discussed some of the reasons why governments typically would restrict freedom of travel. So when we talk about ends and means, that would have been the ends that they're trying to achieve. Now we'll take a look at the means that they use. So instead of asking why they restrict freedom of movement, we'll be looking at how they try to do it. Fundamentally, most modern states have an initial presumption of exclusion, meaning that they're going to prohibit entry to anybody who wants to come in unless those people comply with certain requirements that they've set forth. So this can take the form of passports and other forms of ID, visas, and other restrictions such as trying to confirm whether the people are criminals or are going to try to work in the country without their permission. So in this process, the burden of proof is on the person coming into the country to prove that they're not a bad person, which you could contrast to the presumption of innocence that suspected criminals have in court cases. So there seems to be this double standard where everybody within the country is presumed to be innocent, but everybody from outside the country is in some ways presumed to be guilty or at least presumed to be somehow harmful to the country, unless they can prove that they're not. The most common way that people provide this proof is in the form of a passport. A passport is typically a document issued by someone's own government, which has identification information vouching for who they are. Some of the earliest known examples of passports were essentially just letters from a king asking anyone who a traveler met to grant them free passage. And to a certain extent, that's still the function that they serve. However, as we'll get into a little bit later, they also act as a tool for controlling people's movement. In the modern world, passports are widely understood and accepted. Of course, there are some countries that won't allow people from certain other countries to enter. Because the government of one country doesn't like the government of the other country, regardless of whether the individual is a threat or not. Right. And one thing that I didn't realize when I was researching some of this was how recent a development the widespread use of passports was for travel. People were able to enter the U.S. without a passport during peacetime up until World War II. However, shortly after World War II, it was made mandatory that anyone entering had to have a passport. And that wasn't just people from other countries coming in. That was U.S. citizens leaving the country and then returning to the country. Right. And so this is where it changed from a, almost an informal request for passage into the sort of formal tracking and control system that we have today. And that's where governments really started to proclaim this power for themselves of restricting entry to people coming into the country. And while a passport does offer some convenience when traveling, because for the most part, passports from any one country are likely to be accepted in any other country. They can be a hassle to deal with as well, especially when you come up against an expiration date or a problem I had once, which was that I had actually filled up the entire passport mm -hmm. and uh, I was worried that I would get stuck somewhere without having a spot for someone to stamp. <laughs> At the time, I was in Macau, China. The way you get to Macau is you fly into Hong Kong, and then you take a ferry across to Macau. When you land in Hong Kong, you get your passport stamped for entry into Hong Kong, which is essentially its own territory. Mm -hmm. And then you take the ferry into Macau. You get your passport stamped again going into Macau, because now you're sort of officially in China, or Macau is actually some sort of special economic zone or something like that. So I think it's even if you went from there to China, you'd probably have to get it stamped again. 
But then, of course, coming back, it's two stamps again, and then, of course, a stamp to get back into Australia or wherever I was going next. <laughs> and so, so I was counting up the spaces left in my passport. <laughs> I was like sweating bullets that I wasn't going to be able to get out of China. Jeez. But, you know, of course, then you go in there and some guy opens the thing, he just stamps it anywhere. <laughs> you know, like, they don't care. Right. <laughs> Those spots are pretty meaningless. Yeah, some countries don't even stamp it anymore. Yeah, a lot of them don't. And that's actually kind of a problem because... Well, as I'll get into later, sometimes you want to go back and look through all your stamps and understand where you've been and what the dates of entry were and some of that stuff. And I've had to do that, even though it's kind of a pain, it's, it's probably the easiest way to do it is by going through your passport and checking all the dates on the stamps. Most people probably don't have that problem, at least in the way that you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we'll get into that. I think in the next episode, we'll explain what that's all about. Another kind of public service announcement about passports <laughs> My mother-in-law was going on a cruise. It was like a 10-day cruise or something. And I forget where they boarded the cruise, somewhere in the Caribbean. But they wouldn't let her on the flight to get to the cruise because her passport was due to expire in six months. So it hadn't expired yet. She still had six months left on it. (laughs) But because some of the countries that the cruise was going to allow Americans to stay for six months, then the U.S. wouldn't let her leave with that passport because... I guess conceivably she could get off the boat somewhere, stay for six months, and then try to get back into the country and have an expired passport. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. So if you're planning to go anywhere, check your passport and make sure that you have at least six months left on it. If not, get a new one before you leave. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. She couldn't believe it. She actually ended up, I think, going to New York City and... You know, getting one of these overnight passports yeah. set up and <laughs> yeah. taking a plane to somewhere else and meeting the boat somewhere en route. Oh, God. What a nightmare. So like we said, it's come a long way from simply being a letter from the king requesting safe passage. <laughs> and on top of passports, many countries require people coming from other countries to have a visa, which is essentially a pre-approval to enter the country. Now, even if you go to a country where you don't have to go through a whole process to get a visa, typically that stamp on your passport actually counts as your visa into the country. There may be some behind-the-scenes paperwork or bureaucracy that goes on to sort of classify what sort of a traveler you are. And visas are one of the ways that governments can exert much more specific control over people coming into the country. Most visas have some sort of a time limit on how long someone can stay, and that might vary depending on what they plan to do within the country. So, for example, I think in the U.S., you can be there on a tourist visa for, I think, 90 days. And in other countries, for example, I've had visas to China, which are only good for 30 days. And I think that's been a working visa as well. Sometimes that may just depend on the specific work or job that you're applying for. Yeah, so a lot of the work that I was doing when I was traveling around with the planetarium stuff, I was there as a contractor, so I wasn't being paid in that country. I was obviously being paid in the U.S., so I wasn't technically working as a worker in that country, I guess. And actually, the biggest challenge I ever had getting into a country to do work was, you'd probably never guess it, but it was driving across Niagara Falls to Canada to do a job in Toronto. (laughs) Those Mounties can be vicious. Uh, They were. They're brutal. So my colleague and I were, you know, we drove across, got to the customs gate. So we told the guys that we were just going to Toronto to do a week-long project or something like that and then come back. They got all up in arms. They pulled us into the office and they started asking us all these questions about the How job. dare you? <laughs> How dare you build a planetarium in our fine country? <laughs> yeah, so they pulled us in the office. They're asking all these questions about the job. You know, they wanted to see contracts and stuff. Like, like oh, well, where's your subcontract? You had to prove that you're here to do this job. 
So they actually made us drive back across to the American side of Niagara, which uh-huh. is just a dump. Yeah. We had to drive around and try to find like a, a Kinko's or something like that so we could try to print out this contract. Of course, there's no Kinko's in the American side of Niagara Falls. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky if you can find a working phone line. But so we managed to find some hotel or something that let us use their little office center or whatever. And uh, we managed to get this thing printed off and <laughs> drove back across the falls to the border patrol. And after a, another extended negotiation, somehow they, they finally let us through. <laughs> <laughs> Did they tail you the whole time you were in the country? They probably like stuck some sort of bug in the bottom of our car or something like that. You yeah, know, like, like a, the movies. a Mountie on a horse following your car around town. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was just ridiculous. Yeah, of all the places I've been that I thought I'd have problems getting in or face some sort of questioning or something like that. It's not only the worst, it's probably the only one where I've ever really faced hard questions like that. (laughs) (laughs) And the best part about this is when we first pulled up to the Border Patrol thing, I was thinking it was going to be no problem because I had gone to school in upstate New York and we used to go out on a Friday night and drive up to Niagara to go hit the casino, as well as a few other fine establishments in that town. <laughs> <laughs> we would literally just go up there. You know, you roll down the window. The guy says, where are you going? Up, oh, going to the casino. <laughs> All right, see ya. <laughs> I went right through. You know? <laughs> you know, this is like five rowdy college kids. There's been multiple times when we've driven across there. We actually had a guy in the trunk just because... <laughs> It's because we couldn't fit him in the car, you know, because you don't want to go through the booth with four guys in the back seat with no seatbelts or whatever. So I'm like, all right, someone get in the trunk. Oh, <laughs> of course, on the way back, it was like whoever lost the most money at the casino was the guy who got to go in the trunk, wallowing in his misery. <laughs> uh, I'll go in the trunk. We had a bit of a hassle on the first leg of this trip when we got to England. One thing I've learned since then is that if you have a U.S. passport, you're allowed to stay in England for up to six months just on a travel visa. However, you're not allowed to try to get a job while you're there. And not only that, but it's up to the sole discretion of the border agent to decide if they want to allow you into the country or to send you back on the plane you flew in on. So even though it seems like a better situation that you don't have to apply for a visa beforehand and everything, I think for me, I would rather have some kind of a visa in hand so that it's all sort it out before I get to the airport <laughs> Yeah. rather than getting there and having this guy turn us around for whatever arbitrary reason that he thinks we're not good enough for his country. <laughs> we told the border agent that we were planning to be in England for six weeks. We didn't tell him that we were then planning to be other places for the following <laughs> six months to a year. Yeah. But the first question he asked is, how did I get six weeks off of work? Yeah. <laughs> and so I told him I quit. <laughs> <laughs> And this kind of caught us off guard. For one thing, we had just gotten off an overnight flight with our two kids who were running around like crazy. So I was trying to corral them and my wife's trying to answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I told him that I had left my job and I was going to be a stay-at-home dad. And then I think he asked what we were doing for income. My wife told him that she was self-employed. Plus, I think we mentioned that we had the rental income from our house. One thing they want to know when you go into these countries or when you apply for a visa is if you have enough income or savings to support yourself during the time that you're there. Right. So this goes back to making sure that you're not going to end up in a position where you're trying to get welfare payments or other services, basically that you've got your own means that you're bringing into the country. Yeah, I guess so. Again, I was bleary-eyed and chasing the kids around, but whatever we said (laughs) seemed to satisfy this guy. (laughs) And again, it was only six weeks. So if you were going for a longer period, like six months or something, you might have to have a better story (laughs) together. Yeah, right. (laughs) So really, the biggest problem there wasn't that we were some kind of a criminal or that we had some disease. 
it was a question of whether or not we were going to try to work while we were in the country. <laughs> and I found that England is very restrictive in terms of who they allow to come and work in the country. About a year and a half before we decided to take this trip, my wife and I had looked into the possibility of spending six months or more in England just to have the kind of experience that we're getting now on this trip. But when I looked into the work requirements, I actually ended up speaking to an architect who a friend of my wife's parents knew and just generally asking him about the prospects for employment, not necessarily just with his firm, but just trying to understand the issues involved with an outsider coming and getting a job in the country. And the way it works out is that in England, unless you're in a certain field where they have a shortage and there's a list of whatever these professions are in the country, it's probably things like nurses and things like that. But unless your profession is on that list, it's almost impossible to go to the country and get employment. <laughs> what they need to do is, as hard as it is to apply for a job anywhere, you would have to go and get a job lined up with a firm that wanted to bring you over. But then that firm would have to advertise the job publicly to anybody in the country who wanted to try to apply for it. And if there was anyone in the country who was qualified for the job, not more qualified than you, but just qualified based on the employment listing, then they had to give that person the job over somebody who was coming into the country from outside. <laughs> That's ridiculous. So what that would have meant for me is that I would have had to line up a job, apply for and get accepted for the job probably about six months before I was ever going to go over there. And then they would have to advertise to somebody, go for this whole phony job search process on their end. And then assuming that there wasn't another architect in the country who wanted a job, then they could accept me. And then I would have to go through the three-month process of applying for a work visa. And assuming that all went smoothly, then I could finally go over there and work. But at the time, we were only thinking of spending maybe six months to a year over there. So what employer is going to jump through all these hoops to bring somebody in six months in advance for a six-month position <laughs> that they're going to leave for after the fact? Most employers wouldn't even know what their workload is going to be six months out when they accept you in the first place. So... Yeah, I think it's similar in the U.S. actually with the, um, I can't, I don't know what all the visa classes are, but there's certainly some sort of proof that you have to do that the person you're bringing in is specially qualified or that there's some good reason for you to bring them in instead of hiring a local, you know, American person. Yeah, I'm sure it's just as bad in a lot of places. Yeah, I think Australia is pretty bad too. Another thing a lot of these countries do with their visa system is to establish quotas meaning that they only allow a certain number of people from each country into their country each year. This to me just seems like something that's completely arbitrary. I don't see how they could come up with some fixed number that's the right number of people to allow in the country in a given year. Right. We talked about this presumption of exclusion. It's really like they're treating everybody from outside of the country as a persona non grata. Even if there are people who can come and make significant contributions to society here, they might be excluded just because a certain number of people from their country have already been allowed in in that year. Right. And this also ties into, in the U.S. at least, they've got a lottery which is used to decide who can and can't become a permanent resident with a green card. So a green card in the U.S. is basically just a permanent resident visa. One is to get married to someone who's a U.S. citizen, and you can get it as a spouse visa, or you can get it, like I said, under this lottery program. This just makes it even more arbitrary than, than a basic quota itself, because I guess under a typical quota system, it might be something like first come, first serve. So at least then the people know that if they want to get in, they've just got to get in early and make sure they've got everything in order and they've got a better chance. But with a lottery, it's just completely random and arbitrary as to who actually gets in. You get these people that are on the waiting list for this lottery thing for like decades before they finally get it. Yeah, It's just crazy. 
And in the next episode, I'll talk a little bit about my own experience where my wife had to get a green card when we got married. We haven't talked much about the built environment in this episode. We will get into that a little more in the next episode. But as we're talking about the means that governments use to enforce their restrictions on entry and exit, there are physical elements in the built environment that they rely on. The one that people are most familiar with is ports of entry, which are airports, or I guess they have meant seaports as well. Yeah, when I used to have to do service work on the Queen Mary 2 cruise ship, we would have to go down there with passports and all kinds of stuff just to get onto the ship, even though it was only docked in like New York City or somewhere like that. (laughs) It wasn't quite as much of a hassle as traveling into and out of the country, but there certainly was a process there. We actually had one guy who got stuck on the boat and had to go out, ended up like getting a free cruise down to the Bahamas or something because he hadn't finished whatever he had to do by the time the boat left. (laughs) And I think they actually like mailed him a suitcase full of clothes (laughs) to meet him in Nassau or somewhere like that. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. I never really worked out that loophole when I was working on that. (laughs) So these ports of entry are built as the gateways into the country. And I've actually worked on an airport project where we were looking at the customs and border control process. So were you designing the maze for all the rats to run through? Yeah, we actually did a 3D model of this airport, and I was modeling all the little ropes that people had to walk between (laughs) in the little maze as they waited in line. Yeah. So this is an example of where governments are relying on, I guess I'd call it an architectural means, rather than the means of force of restricting people from going beyond certain barriers to get into the broader country. However, of course, they would resort to force if somebody tried to get beyond their architectural barriers, like the ropes. (laughs) And in a lot of places, you've got to go through these multiple checkpoints before you're set free into the great wide open of the airport terminal. (laughs) In Australia, the way it works is you get off the plane, then you kind of walk down some long hallway where they've got pictures of, you know, Aboriginal people and kangaroos and stuff like that up on the walls. (laughs) You know, welcome to Australia and all that. Paul Hogan. <laughs> yeah, Paul Hogan. The next thing you get to is a massive duty-free shop. <laughs> you have to walk right through the duty-free shop to get to the customs. And of course, you know, they've got all the toys there and the kids are going crazy because they want the toy car and you know, they get the big bottles of booze and everything. So mom and dad um, are going crazy. So, so mom, mom, and, mom and dad are seriously thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you have to get into line. And for me, for a long time, it was confusing because I'd be traveling with my wife and, of course... I'm a U.S. citizen. She's an Australian citizen. So if if I'm coming into Australia, as far as I know, she goes into the Australian citizen line. I go into the non-citizen line, and then we meet up on the other side, hopefully. (laughs) Is that what you guys did? We did eventually figure out that we could just both go together, especially once we were married, that they just process us both at the same place. Yeah, we found that, especially with young kids, they tend to be pretty accommodating with families. Yeah. A lot of times they'll let you even jump the line or go into the special line that's just reserved for the pilots and stuff like that. You know, we spend a lot of time pissing and moaning about these these government agencies and everything. But at the end of the day, the guy or gal who's, who's doing the processing is, you know, is another human being. So there are people who are probably libertarians or anarchists or whatever who, you know, might get some point of pride out of trying to pick a fight with one of these guys. But like at the end of the day, like, first of all, you're not going to convince them. Second of all, they're probably not going to let you into the country. And third of all, you kind of just make yourself look stupid in front of everybody else. So you're really doing more of a disservice to your cause than you think. Yeah, I think the way to look at whether it's the TSA or border control people or or just more generally the police is that in some respect, these people, maybe not so much border control, (laughs) but maybe the TSA and certainly police 
they are providing some service that would be needed even in an anarchic society. So in an anarchic society, you're still going to need some security forces similar to police. And most likely at airports, you're still going to have some kind of security screening process to make sure that there are no threats while you're on the plane. In fact, airport security screening was done privately until I think 9-11, after which they created the TSA and nationalized airport security across the country. After which point, I think the quality of security probably went down. Or at least the quality of the experience going through security. Yeah, I don't think any of those private companies were looking at three-dimensional x-rays of my junk while I was walking through the checkpoint. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not just talking about my luggage. (laughs) Well, you can always opt out. (laughs) You can always opt for the manual inspection. (laughs) (laughs) But depends on the inspector. Yeah, so getting back to the Australian customs thing. Even though I don't think it's a good idea to pick a fight with one of these customs agents, I've got to admit that after a 16 and a half hour flight with two screaming kids having to walk through a sweaty mob of, <laughs> of other people who've been in the same situation and having to stand in line for a half hour just to get up and show your passport to some guy, <laughs> let's just say I understand the sentiment that that person would be feeling. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing that's going to get you out of that situation. And that's showing your passport to the nice man with the gun. Right. So, of course, after you get through that first checkpoint, you spend another half hour waiting for your bags to come out. And then maybe another 15 minutes trying to find the one bag that didn't come out. (laughs) By the time you've rounded everything up and you start heading for the gate, you realize that there's another whole process you have to go through, which is the customs and quarantine process. In a lot of places, they don't even have this. You basically just pick up your suitcase and walk right out and grab a taxi. Sometimes they just do like a spot check for certain people. Yeah, that's right. They might have like a couple of guys walking around with sniffer dogs or something like that. But in Australia, it's, it's very strict and they at least question everyone that walks through. So what happens is you pick up your bags, get in line. And I've literally stood in this line for two hours <laughs> just trying to get through to the customs interrogation. They actually have reality shows, multiple reality shows. There's one called Border Security, another <laughs> one called, I think it's just called Customs. And, uh, and this is like primetime network TV in Australia, you know, where, where it's yeah. literally just video of people being interrogated in the quarantine. <laughs> Sometimes you go through the airport and they've got signs up saying, uh, today we'll be filming for Border Security. Oh, God. You, know, you look over and they've got the cameras and the lights and everything set up and <laughs> and I try to avoid this garbage as much as I can. I mean, I, I don't watch much TV to begin with, but you catch ads for it or whatever. And, you know, it's always like they've got some guy from like Cambodia or something. He's got like a suitcase full of dried fish. That he's <laughs> it's like, you know, and he doesn't speak a lick of English, you know, so right. they're, they're trying to question him, you know, they don't speak Cambodian or whatever. So like they're just yelling at this guy, what, why do you have all this fish? What are you doing with this fish? You know, it's like, what do you think he's doing with it? You know, he's obviously got to bring it in and sell it, but you know, he's probably got a cousin or something that's trying to set up some export import business or something here that those fish could take care of the cane toads <laughs> yeah i know that would be the asian carp <laughs> which was also introduced i think <laughs> yeah it's funny i mean in a way you feel like all of this stuff really is just a show i mean it's like this yeah security theater exactly where it's like this is just the public face of this government agency that can 
show people that, you know, they're being tough and that they're, you know, protecting the borders and all of this stuff. Against dried fish. Right. <laughs> yeah, or, or they catch some kid with a little bag of weed or something in his suitcase. <laughs> they spend the rest of the episode lecturing him about how much trouble he's going to be in. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> when you see this stuff on primetime TV, it's just Orwellian, you know, I mean, it just looks like something. I can't imagine that anyone would actually choose to watch this, but, you know, people are that lazy that I'm sure people do because, you know, Two and a half men ends at six thirty or whatever, and then border security comes on, ready for prime time at, at seven o'clock. You know, so I'll go. Well, I might as well watch this. You know, <laughs> well, I bet in Australia, I bet everybody's been through it because if you want to go from Australia oh, yeah. to anywhere, you got to fly out of the country. Yeah. Well, and what happens in Australia too is all the flights to get into Australia are overnight red eyes. Yeah. Coming from wherever, you know, coming from right. Dubai or L.A. or Hong Kong or somewhere like that. So, <laughs> so they all land within like two hours of each other, you get like you know, 20 or 30 A380 jets unloading into this one terminal. Yeah. So that's why it gets so backed up. Hmm. It's as if people's time just doesn't matter at all. And it's not just time, but it's also money. I mean, when you get stuck in a customs line for two or three hours, which I have been with two crazy kids trying to run around all, all over the place, then what happens is you miss your connecting flight. Yeah. I've been in the situation several times where they could have rebooked us, but the next flight out is until 5 p.m. You know, we've just landed at 7 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are already off out of their minds. <laughs> you just splurge, you spend the extra, whatever it is, a couple thousand bucks or whatever it takes, and you buy another flight. Jeez. It's not good. <laughs> no. And we found that coming into the United States is just as bad as that now in terms of the process. At certain airports now, when you come in through customs, so of course you fill out the little card on the plane where you make all your declarations and put in your passport number and everything. But then when you get to the terminal, you go and you wait in the first line and you go up to a little machine where you have to go through each of those questions again. Right. You have to stand in front of a camera and get your picture taken. You have to give your fingerprints on this little machine. Yeah. And then you have to do that for your whole family. So with the four of us, <laughs> we're going through all these questions and the photos and the fingerprints for our whole family of four. So we're holding the kids up to the camera, you know, and we're yeah. smashing their fingers onto the little screen to take their fingerprints. Yeah. <laughs> and you go through that whole process and everybody on the plane has to do that. And that's just the first part. And then you get in line to go talk to the passport person. Right. Luckily, we're just U.S. citizens, so they wave us through there. Although they have asked some funny questions like, you know, oh, so are you moving back to the United States? And we're like, no, no we live here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the last time we went into the U.S. was the first time I've seen this. So we went through the whole thing with the machine and the cameras and all that stuff. And again, we're traveling with the two kids as well. So it's the same hassle. And some sort of red flag came up. And so in addition to the process Tim has described, we had to go to some other desk in between the scanner machine and the passport checker. There was some other, actually, I don't know if I ever found out what the issue was. We assumed it had something to do with the fact that my wife is an Australian citizen, not, not a U.S. citizen. So we went to this other line, waited in that line for a while. And I don't think there was any issue at all. Again, we just, we had to answer a couple of questions or something like that. And then they waved us through. So it's just ridiculous. I don't remember if they had the whole quarantine customs thing in the U.S. Do they have that now? or? Well, what they do now, so this is the next part. So what I just described is kind of, you know, phase one yeah. <laughs> of the border check. You do the little kiosk, you go through the passport checker, and then you go and wait at the baggage carousel. And what they're doing now with all the baggage is they have x-ray scanners, I assume it's x-ray, that scans every piece of baggage 
coming off of the airplane through the baggage check. So you're literally just standing there waiting for them to check every single bag off the plane before they start spitting out of the baggage conveyor. And that part alone, I think we waited about an hour before any bags came out. And we heard everybody around us, like you said, you know, rescheduling their flights (laughs) because everybody missed their connections. Yeah. And not only that, but then you get home and you open your bag up and you find that there's a there's a paper in there that said, you know, the TSA or whoever searched this bag. And yeah. So then after that, after you finally get your bag, you go and wait in another line to do what's called the exit interview, which is just another person that just asks you the same questions again before they finally let you through the doors out into the airport. We've been through this process enough times now that whenever we're going internationally, whether it's to the U.S. or between other countries in Europe, although Europe's a little easier, we allow a minimum of three hours for any international layover between flights. Beyond the official ports of entry to a country, of course, any country that has a significant border, which is pretty much every country, has unofficial ports of entry uh, all along the borders. And of course, it's kind of silly when you've got all the security focused on airports and seaports where people can come into the country, but then you've got this massive border which is essentially unprotected. Now, of course, the way some people want to deal with this is by putting up walls or fences across the whole length of the border. For example, I I think there's some sort of fence down near Mexico these days, isn't there? Yeah, I don't know how complete it is, but there are a lot of sections between the U.S. and Mexico that are fenced. There's kind of a natural border there with the Rio Grande River. Right. But then, of course, there's some sort of hodgepodge fence that people have put up down there, which it doesn't keep people out anyways, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and a funny thing about that whole concept, and this just shows how absurd it is, I haven't been paying much attention at all to the current U.S. elections that are going on. But one time when I did see some news headlines, as I recall, I think we were standing in the U.S. customs line, and they have all the TVs up there just to keep people, you know, sedated while they're waiting in line. (laughs) And they had CNN or some news network up on the TV. And I see this headline along the bottom that says something about, you know, Trump is proposing to build a wall between the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Here I am you know, going through this whole process, and they think that they're going to wall off the whole country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the mentality that people have. It's like they think that you can just tell people not to come, and then they won't come. Or that you can just build a wall, and they won't find a way to get past the wall. Right. I mean, it's just absurd, this, this concept of keeping people out. If people want to come, they're going to come. And there's very little you can do to stop them beyond unjustified brute force. By my experience, it seems like the border to Canada is already pretty secure, <laughs> at least getting into Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you go into the casino, of course. <laughs> right. You didn't try taking a barrel over the falls? <laughs> you know, with all the times I've been in Niagara Falls, I don't think I've ever actually like sat and looked at the falls. <laughs> <laughs> Because we'd always go out Friday night, you know, and then the next morning we just hung over. Let's just get home. (laughs) I've seen them from the road, but I've never actually gone and like looked at the falls. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have. They're breathtaking. An extreme example of this would have been the Berlin Wall, which prevented people from one side of Berlin from interacting with people on the other side of it. Now, of course, that wall probably shows the logical end result of that sort of a policy, which is that the wall was protected with heavily armed guards who wouldn't hesitate to shoot someone who tried to get over it. Right. And that's really just a more overt expression of everything that we're talking about here. 
ultimately all of these border controls boil down to some guy standing on a wall who's not going to let you in with your life. Yeah, and this role of an armed border force doesn't have to be limited to the border itself. So there's sort of a stereotype of the you know, Nazi Gestapo officer who comes onto a bus to check everyone's passports saying, your papers, please. <laughs> and that's become almost a symbol of government oppression. It doesn't really matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. Pretty much everyone recognizes that as a representation of totalitarianism. Now, the interesting thing is these days they actually have mobile border patrols within the U.S. who are able to pull over someone and question them and request proof of their right to be in the country. And I think it's something like up to, what is it, 90 miles from the border or something like that? Yeah, I don't know how far it is, but I have heard that you can get 100 miles into Arizona or something and get pulled over for no reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe there's some reason, maybe depending on the way you look, you know, that they have a reason for pulling you over. Or they claim a reason for pulling you over. Right. <laughs> and essentially, they're asking for your papers. Uh, your, your papers, please? <laughs> <laughs> These days, totalitarianism comes with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the end result, if you do get stopped without the proper papers, or if you're found to be working illegally in a country, or if you've overstayed your visa, is that eventually you could be deported. So there's a whole other agency in the U.S. that's the Immigration and Naturalization Service or something like that, the INS. And if they find you, they have a process for deporting you back to your own country. Yeah, and a good example of this was in Cheech and Chong's movie Up in Smoke, <laughs> where someone calls the INS and gets everybody in this party deported to Mexico. But it turns out the reason he did it was because it was his cousin's wedding or something like that, so they just wanted a free ride down there. We've talked a lot in this episode about what it takes to get into a country. However, once you're there... There are even more onerous requirements for what you need to do in order to be able to stay there, especially if you're looking to relocate there permanently or become a citizen. And this is a process that I've gone through twice, which is probably more than most other people have in their lives. So in the next episode, we'll be discussing my story, first about how my wife came to America, and then about how I came back to Australia. We're also going to explore some of the longer-term effects of either prohibiting or allowing immigration into and out of a country. This can have some significant impacts on the built environment in terms of the way that neighborhoods and cities are settled. And there are some strategies in developing the built environment that can help to alleviate some of the stresses that mass immigration is often perceived to be causing. All that and more in episode 007, Citizen of Nowhere. All right, that's it. That's all you get. <laughs> <laughs>